if you'd pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bring Christ forward through the preaching of your word this morning, that he would increase and that we would decrease, that we would be nothing and that you would be everything. May the glory of you come through your word this morning to us. Um, Guide our ears to hear the truth. Humble us. Give us attention to listen. And uh, Lord, we just need you and your help this morning. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Uh, my name is Mitch Friedman. I am one of the pastoral interns, or our pastoral intern here at River City. And uh, this morning I have the privilege of preaching to you through our psalm series. Um, and last week we looked at the lament of Psalm 17. So this week we will be looking at Psalm 18, which is actually a royal thanksgiving psalm. And it recounts God's blessings to David and reminds us of the blessing that God brings to us through David. So though it is written in the first person by David, this song could have been sung by all the people of Israel who were under David and to follow David. They would have sang this song praising God for his faithfulness to David and for setting him and his descendants on the throne of Israel. This psalm contains the second longest title in the book of the Psalms, and it gives us the setting and purpose for this psalm. It reads, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. Now, an interesting thing is that this is not the only place in Scripture that we find this song. It's actually also recorded in 2 Samuel 22 at the end of David's life. So commentators debate whether this took place early in David's life and was just added on as something he wrote at the end in Scripture. Um, So that would have been in the setting of right after Saul was uh, killed and David became king. Or this could have been written towards the end of David's reign as he had defeated many enemies in his reign, including um, being delivered from the hand of Saul. So regardless, David is thanking the Lord for delivering him from his enemies, which was a promise that God made to him in the covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel 7. So to, because this is a long psalm, it's 50 verses, I'm going to actually have Austin Brenner Uh, come up and read this passage for us this morning so you don't get too much of my voice. Um, Austin is a student leader in FCA. He's on the wrestling team, a student at NDSU, and attends the Waite Community Group. And I've been able to meet with Austin for like weekly over the last year and a half or so. So He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. 
for all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those rise, those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations, people whom I had not known serve me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, um, when I attended NDSU and was on the wrestling team, they began an event called the Green and Gold Gala. And this was an event that was an awards show at the end of the year for Bison Athletics, similar to the ESPYs, if you've ever seen anything like that. Um, And so our team would always get together, we'd dress up, we'd go out to a fancier restaurant and uh, just have a fun time together before. And then once we went to the event, it was at the Fargo Theater, they had a green carpet, they had a backdrop where they do photos and interviews, and then... um, and then once the, the event began, the media team had compiled highlight videos and also a blooper video. And I appreciated hearing the, or seeing who was nominated for what awards and hearing the acceptance speeches of the winners. And it was just a really cool event. However, my last or my junior year was my least favorite year. That year I was nominated for an award. And at dinner, I was thinking about what I would say if I won rather than having a good time with my teammates. And when we got to the green carpet, I just wanted to get inside so that the event could start. 
And when they were going through the videos and the other awards, I was watching the clock waiting for mine to come up. And so then the big moment came, and I didn't win. Sure, I was disappointed, but as I reflect on why that event was my least favorite, it wasn't ruined because I didn't win. It was ruined because my focus was on myself. And this morning, with Psalm 18, we have the potential to make the same error that I did at that year of the Green and Gold Gala. We might read Psalm 18 about David's victories and try to make it primarily about our lives and about our enemies. If we try to make this psalm about ourselves, we will ruin it. Now, there are truths here that benefit us and applications that we can draw out of here, but this psalm is primarily not about us, and that's okay. Again, this is a royal psalm of thanksgiving written by David because of God's deliverance for David and the defeat of David's enemies. And we will see how this psalm ultimately points to Jesus. But as for us, by ourselves, we are overwhelmed with distress and defeated by our enemies. Only through God's anointed king can we find deliverance from our distress and salvation from our enemies. So David begins this psalm with praise to the Lord because he was delivered from his distress, verses 1 through 19. And he uses strong language here to describe God, which shows his, the depths of his thanksgiving. He uses the word rock four times throughout this psalm to describe the Lord. And one of the most prominent places in scripture where the Lord is called the rock is a song in Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 through 4 read, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Now a rock is strong, sturdy, reliable, faithful, it's a refuge, immovable. And the other words that David uses to describe the Lord in this opening are, are similar, they're different sides of, of that same truth. He calls the Lord his strength, his fortress, his refuge, his shield, the horn of his salvation, and his stronghold. And because God is these things, he is worthy to be praised. Now, this can seem excessive, all these descriptions, but husbands in the room, I ask you, if you were to compliment your wife and tell her that she's beautiful, that's a good thing. But you could go further and say that the way that she cares for others is beautiful. The way you raise, or the way you raise our child is beautiful. The way that you listen to others is beautiful. The way that you work hard at your job is beautiful. And the way that you try to point your kids to Jesus is beautiful. So you could go deeper than just saying, you're beautiful. David goes deeper than just saying, God, you're strong, or you're my rock. It's like looking at a diamond. We can appreciate its beauty, but when you actually pick it up and look at each facet and look at it from every angle and thoroughly examine it, 
you have a greater appreciation for its beauty. That is what David is doing here. That's why he begins with, I love you, O Lord. He's meditated on God extensively. He's brought his mind to thoroughly consider God as his defender. It's not just this instantaneous love that is weak and fickle and in the moment. It is a love that has developed over time and tests that, God, or that David has endured and seen God come through. And so he's repeatedly, or he's repeatedly looked at God. He's come to see the depths of this truth, and it causes him to begin this psalm with, I love you, O Lord, my strength. So I ask a couple questions this morning. How do you express your love for God? What are your affections for God like? How do you think focusing deeply on God would grow your love for him? Now, all of us can grow in our love for God, which leads us to the next point. David calls God worthy to be praised. This is adoration. We've been focusing as a church on prayer this summer, and um, one of the acronyms that Marty gave us to pray is ACTS. And it's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And most of the time, our prayers are the S, uh, supplication, their requests, asking God for things. And we struggle to get to adoration. And so let's look at David's example here. He concludes that God is worthy to be praised. And... Um, it's because he's meditated deeply on God. So to help ourselves in growing our prayers of adoration, we could come here to Psalm 18 and pray through exactly what David's written. That would be one really good way. Another way would be to pick something that's good about God and just spend five, ten minutes thinking about it to arrive at some of these other facets of that truth. And then pray them back to God in adoration. So may we grow in our ability to meditate on the Lord's goodness and adore him for it. David has thought deeply about God and it spills over with praise for God that is a many-sided adoration, not flat or one-dimensional. So how do you think your adoration for God would grow if you took time to focus on who he is? Now, Why is David praising the Lord and proclaiming these wonderful descriptions? He is recalling how the Lord delivered him from distress. So we have to ask, why was David's life in distress and what was that? Well, he was anointed king uh, while Saul, Saul was actually still on the throne. He had to wait 13 years before actually receiving his crown after the prophet Samuel had anointed David as king. And most of that time, he was on the run for his life because Saul and his supporters were trying to kill him. And then after he became king, he had many battles with enemies outside of Israel. And later on in his reign, one of his sons actually rebelled and caused David to flee his own kingdom. And he likely had many other distresses just from ruling a nation. But 
in his distress, he cries out to the Lord for help. Now, verses 7 through 19 that Austin read, um, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Um, I'm not going to reread everything. But uh, this language is very poetic about how God delivered David. But the point he's making is that God's deliverance of him was severe and it was mighty. Just because it's poetic doesn't make it any less meaningful. He gets specific in the second half of the psalm. But God mightily mightily intervenes on behalf of David. And this language that he uses, this poetic language, actually draws us back to different events that the Lord mightily intervened. When it talks about the mountains trembling and smoke and dark clouds and coals and flames, that would remind the people of Israel of Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses. When it talks about the parting, or the, the waters being um, split, let's see, where was that? Verse 15. It says that the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. This would bring their minds to when God parted the Red Sea, delivered them from Pharaoh's army. And then when it talks about hailstones um, and God casting hailstones down to deliver David and how he brought them into a broad place, this would draw their minds to um, their conquering of the promised land. So this is a mighty response from God that David is pointing us to. And he draws upon language from some of God's mightiest acts of salvation in order to describe his own deliverance from distress. So yes, David here is talking about his own personal distress, but it is obvious that God is a defender and a deliverer in who he is. And so we can find encouragement in that. This distress is described as the cords of death, the torrents of destruction, the cords of Sheol, or the the grave, the place of the dead, and the snares of death. They are entangling him, pulling him down and overwhelming him. Have you ever been distressed to such a degree? Have you been overwhelmed by a trial in your life? unsure of how to go on and you just feel stuck and trapped by it? Have you faced an enemy so powerful that you lose all hope of deliverance? Right now, our enemies are not only the wicked and people that could do us harm, but also sin, suffering, death, and Satan. Have you experienced distress in this life. David gives us an example of what we ought to do. We ought to cry out to God. Now again, this is not directly about us, but David does give us this good example. When you are overwhelmed by distress, cry out to the Lord. Bring your burdens to him and cast your cares upon him. He hears your cries and will respond. He is able to intervene now and to resolve the distress. His response may be a mighty deliverance from your present distress like it was for David. Or 
his response may be to allow you to continue in that distress for a while yet because in his wisdom, it is somehow for a purpose that you can't understand or see. But God is good and he is wise. And nevertheless, whether that response is immediate or delayed or never, God will ultimately respond to your cries in the end when he welcomes you into heaven, wipes away all your tears, removes all your pain, ends all your suffering, and brings you to dwell with him. Again, the language that David uses points us back to salvation events like the Exodus and the Promised Land And these were a shadow of the salvation that we ultimately have in Christ. So if you're going through distress this morning, consider your salvation and find hope in that while you endure distress from sin, death, and others now, you have hope in the end. David's cry was answered in a mighty way. But yet, in verse 41, we see something that might cause us to question. We see that David's enemies cried out to the Lord, but he deliberately did not answer them. Why would that be? Well, these enemies were likely those who opposed God and his anointed king. They were not living according to God's will or his law or his ways. Their cry likely came from hardened hearts that remained unrepentant like that of Pharaoh during the Exodus. David, on the other hand, has been called into a covenant relationship with God and set over God's people as his king. And we see, we see how God delivered David because of his covenant relationship with him uh, in this next section, and David reflects on his faithfulness in that relationship uh, back to God. And so this points us to our righteous king. And this language comes, or this comes from verses 20 through 30, and I'm going to just reread 20 to 24 for us. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. How can David utter these words? Does he truly think that he is righteous and blameless? That he is pure and without sin? And that because he has done these things, he's earned God's favor? If this psalm were written late in David's life, as some believe it is, it is obvious to himself and the whole kingdom that he is not blameless. If you remember his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah, that would have loudly accused him of guilt. David himself also writes in Psalm 143, Enter not into judgment with your servant, For no one living is righteous before you. So then how should we understand these words? Well, first, uh, David is proclaiming the general principle that when we live for God and walk in his ways, he blesses us and cares for us and we find benefit. 
It's not prosperity gospel. The book of Proverbs echoes this principle over and over again. While Job, Ecclesiastes, and the testimony of the martyrs show that this is only a general principle and not natural law. David's life was not without guilt, nor was it without suffering and difficulty. Yet in many ways, David experienced displays of God's favor that resulted in blessing, like surviving his oppressors and reigning on the throne of Israel. Now second, these verses distinguish David from those who do not follow the Lord. He's saying that he has pursued loyalty to the Lord adhering to his laws and striving towards obedience because he loves the Lord. His life overall has been one of loyalty towards God and one that has strived for righteousness. So in Deuteronomy 17, before Israel had even come into the promised land, they had instructions for the king once they got there. This king, among with other things, was to write a copy of God's law He was to read it, and he was to keep the statutes, commands, and ways of the Lord according to his law that he had written a copy of. So he was to walk in the ways of the Lord. Then, in 1 Samuel 16, David is chosen by God and and made king. Then, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David— and promises to set him on the throne and his descendants after him. So we see God's initiative activity here in the life of David. And so David responds by saying, basically, God, I have been faithful to you because you have been faithful to me. My reign has been prosperous because I have followed your ways. Now, This is contrasted with the other kings that came after David. In 1 Kings 14, 18 through 19, we read about Jeroboam, who was David's grandson. So just two generations later, we read, You have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes, But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. And so the story goes, king after king, with an exception here or there, until God sends the people of Israel into exile and removes David's offspring from the throne in Jerusalem. And then the people wait, 400 years looking, waiting for the anointed king, for the Messiah, which is Jesus. Spoiler. Ultimately, Jesus is the only one who can say these words in verses 20 to 25 without qualification. He is the true, he is the true king of righteousness. He is the better David. He was made like us in every way, yet without sin. He is righteous, blameless, pure, obedient, guiltless, and holy. 
While David and a couple other kings were good in a general sense, Jesus is the only good king in the absolute perfect sense. He is the better David, the one that David's life points to. He's the anointed king that all other anointed kings that sat on David's throne were leading to. For us, because of our sin, we are overwhelmed with distress and defeated by our enemies. Only through God's anointed king, Jesus, can we find deliverance from our distress and salvation from our enemies. And through God's anointed king means that we repent of our sin and turn to faith in Jesus, trusting his righteous sacrifice on our behalf. Now, David has already reflected on God's mighty deliverance um, in the beginning of this psalm. However, that was more poetic. And here in this last portion, he gets more specific about how he was delivered from his enemies. As a result, we see David praise the Lord who brings victory through his anointed king. So this is just one quick side note, but God gave... uh, God gave victory, and David won the battles. And so we see in verses um, 31 to 45 that there's language of you and I. And so this is just a general way we can look at God's providence and see how it works. Um, God acts and David acts. So God works through means in order to accomplish his purposes. Um, but in this, in this section, we see that um, he had trained David's hands for war, making him a good warrior. Um, he allowed David to pursue his enemies, and David overtook them, and he thrust them through, and they were not able to rise. They fell under his feet. God made his enemies turn their backs to me, and those whom David hated, he destroyed He beat them fine as dust and cast them out like mire of the streets. So David triumphs over his enemies in a complete victory. None is left to stand against him. And all that remains standing submit to him and bow to him. So who are these enemies? Who are David's enemies? They are God's enemies as well because God had set David up to rule his people. So when they oppose David, they're opposing God. So if David's enemies are also God's enemies, then aren't they also Christ's enemies? He is the anointed king that verse 50 talks about. And anointed, our word in English for anointed, is Messiah in Hebrew and Christos, or Christ, in Greek. So Jesus, what he's claiming by being the Christ is that he is the anointed king of God, the son of David that all others before him pointed to. Now, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, we hear the birth account of Jesus, and the angel declares to Mary 
Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the gospel of the kingdom of God. He is the good news that the king, the long-awaited king, has arrived. So as we look at this language of enemies, does this at all apply to our enemies? In what sense can God's enemies be our enemies? First of all, we were all enemies of God in our sin at one point. God's anointed king, Jesus, rather than beating his opponents fine as dust, was beat until the point of death and hung, across, hung upon a cross to die. He was encompassed by the cords of death. The cords of the grave entangled him. And on the third day, he rose in victory over his enemies, over sin, death, and Satan. And through faith in him, we lose our status as God's enemies and are adopted as his children. Through faith in him, we lose our status as God's enemies and are adopted as his children. Romans 5.8 says that while we, were still, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's while we were still enemies of God that Christ died for us in order to defeat our enemies, our sin, the death we deserved, and our accuser, Satan. And this is the gospel truth that I want us to see at this point, is that God shows grace to his enemies. And so if you are still walking in your sin, an enemy of God, now is the time for you to repent and turn from your sin and believe on Jesus. Now is the time of his patient and gracious offer. The conquering king calls you to himself across enemy lines. One day, Christ will return and this time to ultimately destroy his enemies, which is what we read at the beginning of the service from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. David thrust the enemies of the kingdom of God through with the sword of his hand. Christ will come to thrust the enemies of the kingdom of God through with the sword of his mouth. He will subdue his enemies under his feet 
He will take vengeance and bring the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. God brings victory over his enemies through his anointed king. Now, these truths can be a bit startling for us. And without reminding ourselves of this, we can easily forget this truth. It's kind of like yesterday. Junie and I were hanging out inside our apartment because it was kind of hot out. But we went outside and the sun got in her eyes and she was squinting and trying to shade her eyes because her eyes had been in the dark too long and needed to adjust. Our eyes also need to adjust to see the world according to scripture. If the reminder above about God destroying his enemies is a hard one to swallow, or if we are repulsed by God's justice, if it hurts our eyes to read from Revelation 19 about Jesus coming with a sword to destroy his enemies, then our eyes have been in the dark too long and we need scripture to correct our vision. We were all once sinners and enemies of God, deserving the fury of his wrath. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, bringing us into God's kingdom and making us children of God. But those who are not in Christ are still God's enemies, and Jesus will come again with the fury of God's wrath for them. God's anger towards his enemies burns as hot as his love for his children. There's no neutral ground. So that neighbor who's a nice guy is not in some neutral territory. And that friend who is always there for you, but not a brother or sister in Christ, is still an enemy of God in their sin. I'm not saying to not have unbelieving friends or don't associate with unbelieving uh, neighbors or coworkers. What I am saying is that we need to remember that there isn't neutral ground. They need the gospel. They need Christ. They need to come under the, the anointed king because in the end, he alone is the victor and all his enemies will be defeated. Now, in David's victories that he's praising God for, he was not the only one fighting. He was the leader but he had an army behind him. He thrust his enemies through with the sword, but his soldiers had swords too. We, as God's children, are now called to take up the fight against God's enemies. Not like the Crusades. That was a mistake. We fight the good fight of faith and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We fight sin by the power of the Spirit, putting it to death in our lives. We are no longer soldiers in the kingdom of darkness. We are followers of the light of the world. We thrust people through, not with a sword of metal, but with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We preach the gospel to the enemies of God in hopes that the Spirit will give them the eyes of faith and convert them to children of God. We witness about Christ so that children of the devil become children of God. The king who graciously called you across the battle lines now sends you out to go call others as well. You are to pray that enemies of God would repent and believe the gospel. When these enemies slander you and treat you poorly for following Christ, 
You're not to seek out vengeance or revenge. You are to trust that God will deliver vengeance and and justice to those who remain wicked and opposed to him. He will measure out perfect justice. All whose sins are not covered in the blood of Christ will be repaid. Justice will be met. Righteousness will prevail. Good will triumph. God will win. So for you this morning, fight for the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel, praying for your enemies, striving against your own sin, and loving others as Christ has loved you. Praise God who brings victory over our enemies through his anointed king. To close here, we're going to look at verses 46 through 50. We have seen that Jesus is the son of David, the perfect anointed king. So though contextually these words in Psalm 18 are David's words, ultimately they are Christ's. And secondarily, they can be ours if our faith is in Christ. We don't sing about ourselves. We are not God's anointed king. But if our faith is in Jesus, he is our righteous king who brings us these benefits. And because of Jesus, we can proclaim with him, um, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now David has written this song after being delivered. It's a reflection on what has been done it's thankfulness for what, for what God had done in the past. And so as we read and reflect on this psalm, let us find ourselves praising God and giving him thanks for what he did in the past through his anointed king. David points us to Jesus, the true righteous and victorious king who defeats all our enemies, sin, death, Satan, and the wicked. So as we read this psalm about David's victory over his enemies, may it draw our mind to the cross, the resurrection, and the return of Christ. Through Jesus, we are delivered from our distress and we secure victory over our enemies. By ourselves, we are overwhelmed with distress and defeated by our enemies. Only through God's anointed king can we find deliverance from our distress and victory over our enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come here on Sunday not to seek our own benefit or gratification but to seek you and to bring our praise and our worship to you. May this psalm be a reminder to us that we are not the point of your word, but because of your grace, we get to join in the benefits and thank you and praise you 
and experience your gracious, steadfast love. It is through another that we are able to come to you. It is through your son, Jesus. We thank you for sending him for his work on the cross and for the benefit of salvation that we experience in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.